Well, good evening, folks. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you turn with me to the book of Colossians? We're continuing our study in Colossians chapter 1 this evening. We'll finish the chapter. Colossians chapter 1. I grew up in church during the 90s. I was in youth group in the 90s, and there was a saying that I suppose it's, you still hear it from time to time about someone that's on fire for God. Right? You hear, ever hear that before? All oh, such and such is on fire for God. This recognition that sometimes you see folks that God has really gotten a hold of their heart and of their lives. Well, when the gospel really gets a hold of people, they are inclined to do incredible things. They're enabled to do incredible things. What I mean is that when people really sink their teeth in deep, and when they're radically altered by the gospel, they will find that God gives them the, the desire and the ability to do things that they never thought they would do, incredible things for his sake and for the sake of his body, the church. When a sinner really comes to grips with the stunning riches that, that, that are his because of God's grace, he finds himself, he finds within himself this new desire, a desire to explode on the scene and to tell people about the riches of the gospel and the riches of God's grace. And he's even willing to suffer to do it. To Paul and to all the apostles, and to tens of thousands of other radical Christians who have followed in their footsteps, this kind of commitment, this gospel radicalism, it's not, it's not weird and it's not strange. It is just simply the normal Christian life. It's, it's what people who understand what God has done, this is the outworking of their lives. In the text before us tonight, Paul is, is turning away somewhat from the thanksgiving and the introduction and the, and the description of who Christ is, and he's, he's taking a much more pastoral note. He's turning now to matters of pastoral care, and he, he, he speaks of the gospel ministry, and he, he's giving a defense in part of his apostleship, right, that, that he didn't go to Colossae, we don't think, um, so these are folks who pro probably didn't know him, so we'll hear some of that, and we'll hear some more of that, that later, but we'll hear him describing his ministry in the gospel, but also how the gospel drives him to do the things that he does. And here is where we'll find lots of application for our lives. And that brings us to the main text for the evening, which I'll read before we even read the text. And that is this. In the gospel, Paul has discovered riches worth suffering for. Or we could say it like this. There are in the gospel riches worth suffering for. And my prayer is that perhaps even tonight, you and I would make that same life-altering discovery. So let me read this text for us, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24, and then I'll say a brief prayer to the sin. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister 
according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray now that as we have heard your word and as we now consider it and seek to apply it to our hearts, we pray that we would discover what Paul was convinced of, that the gospel is full of radically life-altering riches. Father, we're convinced of the riches of money, the riches of the approval of man, and the riches of pleasures. Help us to be far greater convinced of the riches that are ours in the gospel. Lord, we know that takes a miracle, one that no preacher can do. And so we pray that you would, by your spirit, work to that end in our hearts. And we entrust this to you now. In your name, amen. Tonight, as we consider Paul's letter here, I'd like to draw your attention to two major big picture truths about Paul's ministry that are particularly relevant to us. And the first one is this. We'll see that gospel happiness enables suffering. Gospel happiness or gospel joy enables suffering. And secondly, that gospel happiness or gospel joy fuels ministry. It fuels ministry endeavors. Let's first think about this statement. Gospel happiness, happiness or joy that comes from the gospel enables us to suffer. In verse 26, Paul begins with one of those sentences that drives me crazy. He's talking about that rejoicing in suffering again, right? And if you're honest, uh, all right, when you read that, you're like, what? Paul, I wish you would just leave those little sections out. I mean, they're all over his letters, right? Rejoicing in suffering. For, uh, they, they bat, these words, if we can kind of drop our familiarity with them, they are baffling. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, he says. Now, we church people, if you're church people, we we tend to be a little bit desensitized to Paul's language, right? We hear it all the time, or yeah, rejoicing and suffering, right? Rejoice and suffering, and 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 it can it can we can be callous to it. But but take a moment, try to get that under your fingers. Paul is claiming to be rejoicing in what he is suffering because he sees a bigger purpose. He sees it as for the sake, for the benefit of the church. Now, we'll get to how his suffering benefits the church in a moment, but, but let's first think about the bigger issue here, because I think that we have to address this. How is it possible to rejoice in suffering? I mean, is that like one of those just Christian church things that we just kind of all talk, we preach about, but no one ever really does that? <laughs> like, I mean, how is it that we, how is it possible to rejoice in suffering? Is Paul just some super Christian, right? I mean, he did write 13 books in the Bible. <laughs> how is this even possible? 
If Paul's words are true, I think they are, then that means that they are revealing a precious gospel secret that it seems very few Christians know deeply. The gospel is able to produce circumstance-proof joy. The gospel is able to produce circumstance-proof joy. Paul's words and Paul's testimony reveal that he had found, that he had, he had discovered and tapped into a joy that is not dependent upon his situation. Just think about that. He's found a joy source that doesn't dry up when the suffering is turned on or when his circumstances change. Now, for the world, and, and let's just be honest, many times, often for us as Christians, our joy and our happiness, whatever you call it, I, I think those are the same, same meaning, our joy and our happiness depends on the circumstances of our life. Most of the time, doesn't it? How are our hobbies, or how are our bodies, or how are our finances, or how are our relationships? If they're good, we're feeling good. I mean, have you ever even noticed it in the weather? Have you noticed how the weather even can affect how you're cranky? I was hungry the other day. You didn't even want to be near me because I was all tied up and like being full. And I mean, like so often our, 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 our moods, our attitudes, even our heart health can be tied up in our circumstances. Do we feel fulfilled in our work? Do you get enough time to yourself? Do you have quality friendships, right? And so when suffering hits, whether it's big suffering or small suffering, when it comes and when it wrecks those things, that joy fades. That's what suffering does. It, it, it takes away something that we love. It's not, not, it's not saying it's always sinful. We'll get to that in a moment. You see, for Paul, Paul had this deep love that what he loved the most and what produced the most joy and the most happiness in his life, it couldn't be taken away. You couldn't touch it with a Roman prison or a whip or a stone. You couldn't touch it. You see, for Paul, Paul understood, not only did he find this joy, but he knew, he could see how his suffering was a part of how God was working actually to enhance his joy. Paul saw that the suffering in his life was part of God's plan to make him happier, to make him more joyful in God. If you think back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, do you remember these words of how Paul spoke that, that how suffering was always at work in order to help him know God better, to help him get more God? Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3 verse 10. You see, when good things are taken away from us, and when we enter into a season of suffering, no matter what, what that season is like, even if it's just for three hours on a bad afternoon, no matter what the circumstances are, we as Christians have a chance to turn to the Lord. To take that void that has been left by some loss and see how God is sufficient. How, there, how we can fill it with more Christ. That's what it means to, to know him, to, to share in his sufferings. See, each one of us, we are all so prone to, to take the good things that God has given us. And to give them too much power, too much influence, too much significance in our lives. 
And so people or things or feelings or experiences, they tend to to give us meaning and purpose in life rather than God. So even when God takes away that we're not sinfully attached to, what happens is that as we suffer, we grieve real loss. And we look to fill the void that is left in our suffering. I think Paul is saying that this is a prime opportunity to discover more God. Our suffering has this way of making more room in our hearts for God. To know Him more fully and to rest on Him more fully. This is what Paul is talking about in in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about, I'm convinced that that the comfort that I have received from God I now give to others. There are certain types of comfort from God that you cannot know unless you suffer. Because what good is comfort for the person who doesn't need to be comforted? God shows himself sufficient. I'm convinced that in many cases, this is often part of the dynamic that's going on in our depression. We experience some sort of loss, whether that's the approval of a person, or the loss of some dream we had, or even a disappointment in a hobby, or, or some joy that we once had, and we feel empty. We, can maybe, we can't explain it, maybe, but we feel empty and sad and, and down. Nothing to excite us because the things that once filled our joy and happiness the moment before are gone. They failed us. And depression is often what happens when we lose our circumstantial, circumstantial joy and then fail to let God fill that void. Our, our depression is that devastating feeling of that emptiness without God being sufficient. Yet in our gospel, in our new gospel identity, God offers for us all the resources that we need to find depression-proof, circumstance-proof joy. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we're not sad. It doesn't mean that we're not people who mourn. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin. We have things to mourn about. But circumstance-proof joy means that all of our struggles, even long struggles, they take place on the rock-solid foundation of extravagant gospel promises. That no matter what happens in this life, that I, the chief of sinners, have been promised a life with such ever-expanding joy and happiness that there is no possible present suffering that could ever take it away. You see, none of us is sufficiently excited about the gospel. None of us. And you see, if you know Christ... See, we must understand that such joy, that if the gospel is true, that such joy is possible. And if we, and if we know Christ, we know, we can be confident that God is mercifully scheming up ways for us to experience all the joy that is possible. And often that includes our suffering. But Paul goes on and he writes some of the most confusing and and frankly hotly debated words in the letter. Here in verse 24, this has baffled me most of my life. He, He says the words, in my flesh, so he's rejoicing in his suffering for the sake of the church. And then he says, in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That is, the church. Now, can you see why that is confusing, right? What 
could be lacking in Christ's afflictions. It kind of sounds like that something about Christ's afflictions or his death was not sufficient. Well, we can be assured that that is not the case, right? Paul was not saying that Christ's death was not sufficient, not complete, not finished, not, not, not enough to accomplish our redemption. The New Testament is clear about this over and over and over again. If you want to see Paul, just a few verses later, look down at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul assures the Colossians that Christ has already forgiven all of their trespasses. And he has made them alive with Christ. You see that? Paul wasn't coming along topping off Christ's work, right? Paul was not the cherry on top in his suffering. That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense with, in the context of Paul's letters. The work was done and it was finished. So what, is, what does Paul mean? What does it mean to be filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, I'll spare giving you the, the details of the argument. It, took, it takes some time, I think, to un, untangle a little bit. But here's what I think Paul is saying. I think that he's saying that as a representative of Christ, he was suffering for Christ. You see, all Christians, we represent Christ. In fact, we are called what? His body. And as his body, we are connected to what? The head, Christ the head. So there's a sense that when we suffer for Christ, especially for his sake, he suffers with us, even though he is not physically present. Here's, here's perhaps a simpler way to think about it, because that can be confusing. Think about it when, when Paul, or rather Saul, when Saul was confronted on the road to Damascus, do you remember what Christ, what Christ said? Do you remember the question he asked him? Saul, Saul, why are you what? persecuting me. Well, where was Jesus? He was ascended into heaven. How in the world was Saul persecuting Jesus who is in heaven? Who was he talking about? He's persecuting the church. And Jesus is saying, you persecute the church, you persecute me, even though I'm not physically present. Paul was, Saul was persecuting the body of Christ, not his physical body, but his church. And Christ was absent, yet his body was being afflicted. There is a suffering that, there's a suffering that is ordained for us as the church, for the body of Christ, yet Christ is not physically here to endure it. But we are given the promise that where we suffer, where we endure such suffer, suffering, Christ is with us. That's why he spoke of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Because when we suffer for righteousness sake, Christ is ever so very close. I love the story of Dr. Helen Rosevere. Dr. Rosevere served as a missionary doctor in Africa for, for some time. She served there for, for 12 years and enjoyed 12 years of peaceful ministry. She was the only, she was the only physician in an area of, of several million people. You can imagine the demands on, on her ministry. Well, suddenly the country, I think she was in Zaire, under, uh, went underneath a, a, a tumultuous revolution. And she and her staff were taken, were taken capture and were tortured for more than five months. 
At one point, they, had, they were preparing to execute her when a 17-year-old boy who was also in prison stepped into to intervene and stepped into her defense and, and delayed the execution. And she watched as he was beaten and kicked like a football. And in that moment, she said that that was her deepest, darkest despair she'd ever faced. She wondered, has God forsaken me? She still believed in God, but she seriously doubted that he was present with her in her suffering. And it was in that moment, she reports, that God powerfully and dramatically overwhelmed her with this unmistakable sense of his presence. She reports that it was as if he was saying, 20 years ago, Helen, you asked me for the privilege of serving me as a missionary, for the privilege of being identified with me. So these are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. She later reported that as the force and the reality of that truth began to sink into her, she became overwhelmed with the sense of a privilege to to suffer temporarily for the sake of Christ. Her, Her new sense of identification and fellowship with Christ was elevated by her suffering, and it was in that that she rejoiced. Paul was willing to suffer in his ministry because he had discovered and had been thrilled by a fellowship with Christ that was richer than whatever suffering took away from him. That's how he can rejoice in his sufferings. A side note is there's also this this concept in in Jewish literature that there's a a finite certain amount of suffering that the church has to go through. Think about birth birth pangs. There's a certain amount they had to go through in order for for Christ to come. And some some folks wonder, well, maybe Paul was kind of influenced by that and and speaking to being, uh, contributing significantly. But I think the greater sense is in what I described before, this picture of suffering with Christ for the good of the church. And suffering is indeed good for the church. We remember that this theme of the supremacy of Christ in Colossians, we've seen all through this chapter that Paul is he's eager to help the church at Colossae know and to be convinced that Jesus is higher and he's better and he's more satisfying than anyone, anything, or any pleasure this world could ever afford, which means that there's no suffering that could touch him. There's no suffering that could touch satisfaction in Christ. To put it another way, there's nothing that you could ever lose that is more precious than Jesus. And you can't lose him. But we must move on. Let's turn now to think about how gospel joy or gospel happiness enables us to minister. It fuels our ministry endeavors. In verses 25 through 29, Paul is describing his ministry for the church. A ministry that for him, he is convinced, is worth suffering for. The first way he describes this is he talks in terms of this mystery revealing. Mystery revealing. There are many different ways and times the Bible talks about hidden things and mysteries that are revealed. And think about a mystery. A mystery simply is... It's something that it's hidden from us, right? Not from God. Nothing is hidden from God, but its, it's meaning or its, its solution is hidden from us. But the Bible makes it clear that there are some things that God chooses to disclose, especially to his people, through his revelation. 
so when Paul speaks of this, this mystery that he's now proclaiming, he's speaking of proclaiming what God has revealed, the revelation of God, the scriptures, the, the truth of the gospel. And that was his charge. He, he understood that was his charge, just as it is the charge of all men who have been established as pastors and shepherds of God's people to proclaim all of the scriptures as God has revealed them. But why is Paul emphasizing this mystery? And, and what, can, what can we learn from it? First, I suppose, notice, notice this uh, reemphasis of mystery here in, in verse 26, right? The mystery that was hidden for me. And then again, down in verse 27, the, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why is Paul talking so much about this mystery? Well, I think the first thing we should notice before we even answer that question is Paul is emphasizing that the mystery has now been revealed. And so we should understand it. We, God has a desire. He intends for his people to know and understand this mystery revealed fully. Why would God reveal the content of something that's been hidden if he didn't want his people to know it? And to use it and to apply it and appreciate it. We need to apply this. But what is it specifically about this that's a mystery? What about the gospel is a mystery? Why, why, what is it about Paul's preaching that was once hidden and now is revealed? Well, I think we can see five quick answers to that question. The first is, when the prophets generally spoke of mystery, they were often referring to the mystery of when. The mystery of timing. When are these things, whatever they're prophesying, when are they going to take place? When will all this happen? When will the Messiah come? When will God redeem his people from Babylon? When will he gather his people? When will God restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, that part of the mystery has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer to that mystery. And the time is when? When Christ came. Christ's coming marked the, the beginning of the kingdom of God. The, it's inauguration. Christ came on the scene saying, now is the day of salvation. And so we are called, friends, not to wait, but now to turn. And the declaration goes out for all that we should repent and turn and follow Jesus. The time is now. A second dimension of this mystery that was once hidden but has now been revealed is the who. Who is it? Who? Who is the Messiah? Who is the seed of the seed that, that was promised in Genesis chapter 3? Who is this the son of Abraham that will be a blessing? Who is the stump of David? Who is the suffering servant? Who will deal with the problem of sin? Who's the king? Of course, we know the answer to that as well. But we have to remember how surprising that answer would have been to the Jews, especially to first century Jews. That the answer, who would suffer? Who is the king? That the answer would be God himself. Jesus Christ, he is the word himself. That he is the suffering servant who will save Israel from her sins. And as Paul reiterates there in verse 28, he has made it his goal to proclaim Christ and Christ alone. You remember it as well in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I have decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Some, perhaps you've heard a pastor, hopefully not here, you've heard a pastor preach and all his sermons sound exactly the same, right? He's got one, one sermon, he preaches a bunch of different ways. That's what Paul did and that's kind of what I want to do, right? I want to preach Christ in 10,000 ways from 10,000 places because Christ is the revelation of God. That we would know nothing among us but Christ and Christ crucified. A third thing, and perhaps the most immediate thing that we understand about the mystery here in Colossians 1, is the scope of God's gospel plans. How big is this gospel thing really going to be? Who all is really included? Well, you see there in verse 27 that salvation does not belong only to the Jews, as they once thought. But God is revealing his gospel to the Gentiles. Now, what's a Gentile? It's a non-Jew. So is there anybody that does not fall into the category of Jew or Gentile, right? This is the world. God is revealing his gospel plan, his redemptive plan for all the world. Now, again, it's hard for us to imagine the effect of this on a Jewish person. You can read about Paul and the apostles' shock when they got this news. Well, I guess God's, God's going to the Gentiles, right? Just this amazement that his, his, his saving purpose is that big, that grand, that he's that gracious, that he loves people like Gentiles. What a surprise. But we see that God is gathering one people out of all of the people's from every corner of the world. Just as Babel scattered the nations because of sin, God in the gospel is bringing them back together in the church, his body. He's making for himself a one people of God. And so the substance of this mystery, the fact that the gospel is for all people, is what allows us non, you know, non-Jews into the family. This is great news for us. But it also gives us a missionary impulse to go, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to people that are not like us, that don't fit our culture, that, that we feel uncomfortable with, that we would go A fourth dimension of this mystery is the glory, the grandeur of the gospel itself. As I spoke of just a moment ago, I mean, how could it be this big? How could it be this great? Friends, one of the most compelling things to me about the truth of the Bible is that who could have dreamed up something this good? Right? There there are times where I, I think of the gospel and its promises and I think, there's no way it could be this true, this good. Could it really be true? It's, it's scandalous, right? It's so, it's so surprising. That's why the Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to the world. And it's even, dare we say, foolish to our timid hearts. Is there not part of all of us that, that is afraid to believe that it's really this good? The world can't believe how sinful the gospel says they are. And we struggle with that too sometimes. But we really struggle to believe how forgiven and how loved we are. Especially three seconds after conviction. Mark was mentioning several, several ways that we, to confess sin to the Lord. How did you feel in that moment as the Spirit revealed to you ways that you failed the Lord? 
And yet, when we are reminded of the absolution of sin, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or that if you confess, he will heal you. He will not only forgive us, but he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, rather. 1 John 1, 9. I'm convinced that one of Satan's primary tactics against believers is to persuade us of one of two things. Option one, you're not that bad. Right? You're not that bad. That person beside you, now they're bad. But your wife, she's bad. You're not that bad. Right? That's tactic one. The other option is, guess what? You're terrible. God could never love you. Sure, yeah, you've been forgiven. You know, you know all that gospel stuff. But he doesn't really love you. It's, it's, he, just, he just has to. Do you not feel that sometimes? That is the work of the enemy. How could God ever love and forgive you? Brothers and sisters, this is why each one of us needs to rehearse the gospel day after day because there's not one single person in this room that sees the gospel as glorious as it actually is. We all undersell it. That's why Paul calls it the riches of the glory of this mystery. None of us believes it enough, and none of us is excited about it enough, and none of us treasures it enough. So none of us knows the joy, the full joy that is possible, because we don't see Christ as he really is. And you see, if we did, we would find that we're able to suffer like Paul. With his eyes fixed on the hope of glory, the hope that would be revealed. And not only would we be able to suffer like him, but we would be willing to minister like him. One final aspect of this mystery is that Paul is is what Paul says here at the end of verse 27. Specifically, he says that, that the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a phrase that speaks to both our union with Christ, an infinitely deep, glorious doctrine, and also the hope of future resurrection and the glory that is coming for us. These are riches. No one in their wildest dreams would ever have imagined that God himself would come to save his people and that he would die to do it. And that he would rise from the dead and that he would go on to indwell his people with his very spirit. It's through this union, this union that we have with Christ that you see all over the the scriptures, in Christ, in Christ. It's through this union that you and I have access to every single spiritual benefit. Yet, isn't this something that we're weak on? Isn't this how few of us have even a basic understanding of what it means to to be in Christ? And Paul's going to revisit this theme here in chapter 2, verse 13, in a couple weeks, when, when he teaches that we were buried with Christ, and also that we were raised with, and that we are made alive together with Christ. So we'll, we'll come back to that later. But tonight we need to see that union with Christ, that we are with Him, produces our joy and our hope. So hope in Him. Brothers and sisters, may we be diligent like Paul, to seek to know Christ, to know Christ crucified, even if that means suffering, until we would truly treasure all the glorious riches of the glory of his gospel. Paul not only understood these mysteries, he not only professed to believe them, he reveled in them. 
He had spent time thinking on them. They affected him and they changed everything, giving him a willingness not only to suffer, but also to minister sacrificially. Which brings us to one last point. One final way that we can see how the gospel fuels ministry, how gospel joy, joy from the gospel fuels ministry, is there in verses 28 and 29. Paul makes it clear that the goal of his proclamation is not merely evangelism. Paul was not only concerned about evangelism, but to see Christians matured. That's church work. That's discipleship. Paul is sacrificing. He is being physically hurt in order to see someone be a little more like Jesus. The idea here, when we look at this this idea of perfection, let me just read the text. Paul says, um, For this uh, we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone, what? Mature. The word there is a word of completeness. It's a word of perfection. Total holiness. Friends, this is, if you're a follower of Christ, this is God's plan for your, your life. Not that you would be a little bit more holy than the people in your Sunday school class or the person in your fam- people in your family. Not that you'd be the most holy of the group. God's plan for you is total maturity. As I was thinking on this the last week or so, I was just convicted at how, how much I shorten God's standards. This is God's purpose for your life. Total, absolute maturity. Not just for pastors, not just for deacons, not just for young folks, not just for the select few, but look at the text. Who is this for? Everyone. Paul's aim is everyone. Every single Christian in this room, as we look in the mirror of the word, there's a sense of where we should be grieved by what we see. Not to where we despair and are devastated. That's the work of the enemy. But we should have this holy longing, this this sadness. I want to be more like Christ and I'm not there. A godly sorrow that calls us to repentance. Because every single one of us, none of us is complete. There's a very real sense that not a single person in this room is mature enough or holy enough. If you're in Christ, you have been declared to be righteousness, but you are not holy enough, so he's changing you. So we should not be yet content. Some of us don't even read our Bibles. God is calling us to holiness and maturation. You see, Paul longs that all Christians would see the knowledge of his will and that spiritual wisdom that he was praying for back in, back in verse 9, which we said was, was a deepening understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for every dimension of your life. That's what it means to grow in maturity, to have a full, right understanding of who Jesus is, namely that he is supreme and better than everyone and everything and what that means for every dimension of your life. If you come to see Jesus as better than anything, that will change your financial habits. If you come to see Jesus as better than anything, that will change your internet usage. It will change your free time usage. It will change what you think about. Because if he's better than everything, what is a better thought, right? 
That's what maturity looks like. How, how we can work the gospel into every nook and cranny. That is his purpose for the church. It's not just to show up and do the church thing, right? We are called to be here that we would be growing to see how great he is and what that means for every dimension. You'll notice there in verse 28 that Paul has a vision of how this takes place. That, that to produce maturity, Paul's doing a couple of things. He's proclaiming Christ, number one. He's teaching everyone. And look at the third. He's warning everyone. So let me ask you, just as way of application. Have you organized your life around knowing Christ? I mean, have you made sacrifices in your time and your schedule and your money and learning new hard things? Specifically, have you organized your life around putting yourself in a position to hear Christ regularly proclaimed? Do you come to sermons attentive? Do you attack the scriptures with focus and concentration? Are you putting yourself in a position to hear God speak? Another question. Are you humble? Do you have the attitude of a student? Or are you unteachable? Can anyone correct you? Can anyone ask you about your motive without you being defensive? Can anyone say, hey, hey brother, I'm, I'm wondering if... You know, what, what's going on in this area? Have you considered this? I had a, I had a friend, what's today? When I had a friend last night in the parking lot asked me a hard question about stuff going on in my life. And I'm thankful for him. We need that type of relationship. Another question would be is, have you placed yourself in a position where a mature Christian, where mature Christians can know you well enough to warn you of the danger of sin? Is there someone in your life that knows enough about you, that you have enough walls down, that they can speak into your life and warn you, friend, sister, brother, that's dangerous. You're not seeing Christ as beautiful or sufficient. Warning. You have to be known. And then are you humble enough to listen? Brothers and sisters, each one, God has called each one of us to take on responsibility for one another. The responsibility of proclaiming and teaching Christ so that every single believer would be mature. This is not just Paul's responsibility. Paul is gone. You and I have this responsibility to have this desire for one another. We are called to this ministry. And, so as, and notice as Paul says, this is hard, hard, hard work. You don't win a lot of friends when you're lovingly confronting them. Right? It's unpleasant. But look, the scriptures say we're not left without the resources we need. I can't think of a verse that's more precious to me as a pastor and a counselor than verse 29. We are not left without the resources we need, but rather we are promised that we have all the energy that God is powerfully working in us. We're all called to this. You don't have to be a pastor or an apostle or a missionary to do this. So let me close with just an illustration about a normal Christian woman who was truly gripped by a vision of a glorious gospel and how that led her to ministry. I don't know her name, but there's a woman in rural Africa who came to Christ and she was so full of, of joy and gratitude that she just, she had to do something for Jesus. You ever met someone like that? She just couldn't help it. Problem was, she was blind and she was uneducated and she was illiterate and she was 70 years old. What can a blind, illiterate, 
poverty-stricken, uneducated, illiterate seven-year-old woman do for Jesus? Well, she took her copy of a French Bible and went to the missionary that led her to Christ, and she asked him to underline John 3.16 with a dark red pen. So he did, and she had no explanation. So she took her copy, her French copy of the Bible, and she went down every single day and sat outside the French, the boys' school that was in the area. And day after day, one by one, she would ask them, hey, do you read French? And of course, the child would say, well, yes, I'm in French school. And so she'd say, come read this verse. And so the child would open up, and she would, uh, she would ask him, read the verse that's underlined in red. And then she would ask him, do you know what that means? And she would tell them about Jesus. She couldn't see John 3.16, and she couldn't read John 3.16, but she knew John 3.16, and she knew what it meant. It's not a very sophisticated ministry strategy, is it? Well, verse 29 tells us that all of God's energy is powerfully at work in us as we minister to others. So how do you think God used this woman's ministry? Well, what would you guess? Did you know that through that simple method, out of those she led to Christ, God called 24 men to be pastors from that ministry? We are called to go. Go get a hold of the gospel. Let the gospel get a hold of you and then go out and engage in joyful, sacrificial ministry so that you and that others may be presented as mature in Christ, seeing him as glorious. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we need so many resources to make this happen. And so we thank you for your spirit that dwells in us. As we leave tonight, would you give us understanding and work in our hearts in specific ways that each one of us would leave here not not dull of spirit, but with a clear conviction of how you're calling us to change. Give us confidence that when we fail, we are covered by the blood of Christ. And it's in his name and his righteousness that we hope. And it's in his name we sing. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.